Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege and opportunity that we have this morning to gather together to study your word. We thank you for your word that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, that in your word you have given us the framework for thinking about everything in life, that there is no issue in life, there is no uh, realm of study in life, there is no endeavor that man can set his hands to or his mind to in life that does not have some foundation in the Word of God. Father, we thank you that your Word is infallible and your Word is without error and that we can trust it. Thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit who not only indwells us, but he is the one who fills us, guides us, and our understanding of Scripture teaches us. And then as he stores these doctrines in our soul, uh, reminds us of them, brings them to our memory, uh, brings them to our consciousness at times for application. Father, we thank you we have the freedoms that we do in this nation to study your word, and we continue to pray for our president, for our leaders, that you might give them wisdom in the execution of uh, foreign policy as well as protection of this nation. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that we might be able to concentrate, put aside the cares the distractions of life, that we may be able to focus our attention on what uh, you have to teach us this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15, and we'll start up where we did last time in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 35. Now, the reason I want to go back to 1 Corinthians 15.35 is that this sets the context for this second section in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, to take us back so we just have a recall of the subject, we've been on 1 Corinthians 15 now for a couple of months, and it is the longest section in Scripture dealing with the doctrine of physical bodily resurrection. To understand why Paul is giving this so much time and attention, we must understand 
that physical bodily resurrection was something that was considered to be uh, rather repugnant to the Greek culture. They didn't think that this was necessary, and they had a misunderstanding of the basic concept of, of physical resurrection. They thought you just got the same old body back in a, in a state that was still uh, corruptible, still stu- subject to age, still subject to infirmity, still subject to disease. Furthermore, they had a more fundamental problem because they, grew, they had all been raised in this Greek culture that put this emphasis on a future spiritual reality that was without a body. And the idea that having a physical body was that this just imprisoned your, your soul. It was a straitjacket, so you couldn't be everything you should be, could be, ought to be if you... Uh, were in a physical body. This was a less than ideal thing. And embedded within this was a certain sense that physical reality is either inherently evil. Don't you just love listening to those birds in the morning? I don't know if you're as distracted by them as I am. Somebody's got to get a 12-gauge out and go after those (laughs) birds in the attic. Anyhow, if I can focus above and beyond the chirping of the birds. In Greek culture, they, they also had this idea that you, when you died, you went back into this sort of an impersonal reality. Now, to understand what was going on here in a very broad sense, and I don't want to get into all of the details of this this morning, but what you have in Greek culture is a philosophized, if I can use that term, development of a concept that really goes back to uh, pagan mythologies. And for those of you who have been coming on Wednesday night, and we've gone through the study in Genesis, if, you, if I can take you back to about a year and four months ago when we started Genesis. I began at, at the beginning of Genesis going to a couple of ancient Near Eastern myths. We looked at the Babylonian creation myth, Enuma Elish, which starts off with you have the god, god Tiamat and Apsu, and you have the body of Tiamat, and these gods are already in existence. And the body of Tiamat is chopped up, and it's from those body parts that you have the creation of the heaven and the, and the earth, and through the, and these other little gods that come along in the Babylonian pantheon. And then it's through uh, procreation that other gods are created and eventually man is created. But it all comes out of this original matter that is part of the body of Tiamat. And so what you see here is the classic understanding of, of creation in pagan thought. And it is what is called the chain of being. And in pagan thought... What you have is ultimate reality is simply the, the, the universe. And the, inf- and the universe is both infinite and impersonal. And within this, the universe, and I'm drawing this circle here, that describes the, this infinite, impersonal universe. And inside this universe, you have the gods, you have man, You have animals and vegetation. 
And all of this is on a continuum of, of existence or a continuum of being so that there's no radical distinction bet- uh, of kind between creation and creator. Now, you compare that chart with what I'll put on the, on the left side of the diagram. In the biblical view, you have God, and God is completely separate and distinct from creation. And so down here, underneath, I'll draw underneath God this, like a wall of separation between God and creation. And down beneath that, you have the universe, which is, now God is infinite and personal. And this is the major contrast between biblical Christianity, where you have his ultimate reality, a God who is infinite and personal versus all human viewpoint thought. See, a lot of people will say that there's 20, 30, 40, 50 different views of creation. Just look at all the different religions. Everybody has a different story about origins. But ultimately, they're all reducible to two. And on the left, you have the biblical view that you have an infinite, personal God. He is another pair of terms that are used to describe the Christian God are imminent. Well, let's put transcendent first. He's transcendent. That's parallel to the concept of being infinite. He transcends everything, all creation. He is broader. He's bigger. He's larger. Another word that theologians have used to describe God is he is immense. He is larger than the creation. He is, and this, of course, will apply to his omnipresence and to his presence to every aspect of his creation. He is bigger, larger, greater than his creation. He is transcendent, but he is also imminent. And that is spelled with an E. If it's spelled with an I, that's the doctrine of imminency that Jesus can come back at any time. So it's I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T, imminent, not I-M-M-I-N-E-N-T, which is imminent, coming back at any time. You have to draw that distinction. And imminent means that God is present to every aspect. So he somehow is able to localize himself on Sinai. He's able to localize himself on the Temple Mount. He's able to localize himself at the, um, uh, as the Shekinah over the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle so that even though he is transcendent and omnipresent and equally present to every atom, every molecule in creation at the same time, he is also personally imminent and fully and totally present at each of those spots. Now, that goes beyond our, our ability to understand that. But this is versus all human viewpoint, all non-Christian views. They all have the same thing. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about a sophisticated, uh, e- either biological or chemical or phys- phys- physics-based view of, of, uh, cre- of, uh, of evolution or whether you're talking about an ancient cosmogony such as the Egyptians, the Babylonians, or the Greeks had, they they all basically boil down to the same thing. And that's this this continuum, continuum over here of this chain of being or continuity of being. Now, in the Christian view, we have the universe, and we have man, 
and we have animals, and we have vegetation. And these are also broken down and separated and distinguished according to their kinds. And that's the biblical word used in Genesis, that there are these distinctions within the animal kingdom. Each animal type is distinguished by kind. You have, you have various uh, air-breathing kinds. You have various fish kinds, and these are impenetrable. There's not this transitional element where something goes from amoeba to man where one day this fish starts uh, strengthening up his little fin muscles and he crawls out onto the beach and he starts walking around the beach for a while as an amphibian. And then eventually that amphibian uh, uh, grows some legs instead of fins and turns into a, a, a reptile. And then that, that reptile begins to... Uh, turn his legs into wings, and becomes a bird. And so it goes. And see, that's where you see this continuum in evolution. Of, of There's no, there's no di- real hard and fast distinction of kinds. Everything is fluid. And so in that, that fluidity, you have, have this continuity. And this is the framework of Greek thought. Greek thought borrowed the whole concept that we I mentioned earlier from Enuma Elish, borrowed that in a period of about the 8th century B.C., you have a period known as the Orientalizing of Greek culture where they basically, as, as a result of their trade and their commerce with, with uh, Phoenicia, with uh, Asia Minor, what we call Turkey now, the Phrygians, with the Assyrians, with the Babylonians and the Persians, and uh, they start incorporating the, these religious ideas from the what we call the Middle East, what is referred to by, by scholars, if it's before Christ, as the ancient Near East. And that's what the Orient, Orient comes from a Greek word that means the East. That's all it means, whatever is east of, what, whatever is east of, of Greece. So they start to incorporate these ideas into Greek thought. And it's manifest in the writings. The earliest writings are, are Hesiod in his work, the Theogony, which is uh, a term for the origin of the gods. Where did the gods come from? And you get the same thing. You get this. It starts off with the gods. There's already something in existence over against the Bible where God creates uh, ex nihilo. Out of, that's a Latin phrase meaning out of nothing. At one point, there is nothing. There's no space. There's no time. There's no stars. There's no planets. There's no gas. There's no matter. There's no energy. There's nothing except God. God then becomes the ultimate reality and the environment. And this is an idea that Paul picks up when he's talking to uh, the Athenians that it's in him we live, move, and breathe. He is our ultimate environment. And this, this, is, uh, this goes to the fact that, that ultimately we have God as our environment in terms of, of the Trinity. Now, one of the odd things in my head this morning, besides the chatter of those birds, is that there's a tremendous overlap in, in thought between concepts I'm developing here in the first hour and concepts I'm developing in the second hour. 
and they're, they're about 60 to 70% the same because they're both building off this whole concept of categories and kinds out of Genesis chapter 1. So I'm trying to uh, keep my head from going, slipping into the second hour material instead of uh, the first hour material. But you need to hold this thought for second hour. When we get into our passage on Revelation and we start talking about, I want to wrap up some things that we started last Sunday morning on the doctrine of language and hermeneutics and interpretation. And we have this ultimate environment of of God, which is very Trinitarian, and that's what we're going to see in Revelation chapter 1 is this ultimate Trinitarian emphasis. But it is, to show you the connection, when we see in John 1.1 that John uses a particular uh, term to describe God, what does he use? He says, in the beginning was the logos, the word. And that word logos, the Greek term, means reason, thought, communication, word. And that tells us that ultimately what we have in the environment of the Trinity is a rational, logical environment where God knows all the knowable which means that as human beings, we can have a relationship with a God who knows everything. That means there's no such thing in life as irrationality. That's the problem you get into when you slip into paganism, is that ultimately everything breaks down to irrationality and mysticism. It always breaks down into irrationality and mysticism, and the more I study, the more I see that, the more you watch what's going on in our culture today. We, we've gone uh, full-born to mysticism. It doesn't matter what you think anymore. What matters is how you feel. You don't have political debates and campaigns that where the emphasis is on content so much as image. image. Everything, we're in the television age, the visual age. Uh, People think in terms of how the visuals impact them emotionally and how they're swayed more than content. That's what goes with with irrationalism and and mysticism because ultimately in in paganism, you can't get back to the fact that, that that the universe has real meaning because you don't have a God who can who understands everything. God is omniscient. Other than in Christianity, you have an omniscient God. So even though man may not be able to comprehend everything, we have a God who can comprehend everything. So even though we may not understand it all, God in his omniscience understands everything and he controls every microscopic detail in the universe. Now this contrast which you'll probably hear a lot of. I'm supposed to do a two hours of lectures on this whole concept at the Conservative Theological Society meeting in early August, so I'm sort of enmeshed in this along with the studies in, 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 uh, we're, we're, we're doing in Genesis. But it, it really plays into the backdrop for understanding 1 Corinthians uh, 15 and what Paul says here, because on this side you have hard and fast kind. Whereas over here you don't. You have this, this fluidity going on. And ultimate reality is, is an impersonal, infinite universe. So what happens when you die in Greek thought? Incidentally, this whole idea of the chain of being goes back to Plato. And for those of you who never had the wonderful privilege of studying 
the history of philosophy. The flow in the history of philosophy goes from the first group, which are called the pre-Socratics. That's the early group, uh, Anaximander, Anaximenes, Thales, Heraclitus, Parmenides. These are the pre-Socratics. That means they lived before Socrates. Then you had Socrates. Socrates' student was Plato. Plato wrote down, Socrates didn't write anything. Plato wrote down most of what Socrates thought and the the development of Plato's ideas. And Plato's most profound pupil was Aristotle. And Aristotle shifted. uh, Plato emphasizes reason and the ideal. See, what's out here beyond, out here in this impersonal for Plato was the ideal. And Plato was the first one to really more, more or less articulate in a philosophical sense this whole concept of a chain of being or continuity of being. And it's still with us today. I mean, this isn't just some interesting little note in ancient history somewhere. And this is part of what I've been doing a tremendous amount of research on lately. This idea dominates. It goes all the way down through the, the pre-Socratics, the Socratics, Plato, Aristotle, down to the Stoics and Epicureans. And remember last time I tied that, tied the, the uh, Epicureans and the Stoics together. These are the groups that Paul is addressing and arguing and debating with in Acts 17. They reject a resurrection. Now, all of these groups had, had similar views on, on origins. They all bought into the continuity of being. Now, the, where this impacts Christianity is that the Epicurean Stoic philosophy was, sort of went uh, bankrupt by the time of Christianity. And by the second century of Christianity, you get a resurrection of Platonism called Neoplatonism. And Neoplatonism is the sort of the other side of the coin of something called Gnosticism. And we studied Gnosticism many times. We had to do a study of Gnosticism when we went through 1 John. And this, is, this becomes the, the cultural uh, thought of the first century, just like the cultural thought of the 20, late 20th, early 21st century in, in the U.S. is is the New Age movement. This was such a new thing back in the, back in the early 80s. I remember Moody Monthly had a, had a picture of a, of a beautiful apple on its cover. And the apple was cut open, and inside it was just rotten. And the, head, the, 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 um, the caption read, the New Age movement, you know, n- New Age, old lie. Just the same old story with, with new terms and being rehashed. And it's it's and that all of this ties together. All it is a resurrection of all of this same kind of human viewpoint, uh, pagan thought that has dominated uh, non-biblical thinking throughout the generations. And what happened in the early church was that people like uh, Origen and Augustine and others had their training in that. Just as people today grow up in it, you get you get people who grow up in a postmodern New Age culture, and then they become a Christian and they go to seminary, what's the biggest problem they're going to have? See, they're st- if they haven't gone through a, op- an overhaul of their thinking, then they're going to approach the Bible with this 
preset, postmodern, New Age grid. And that's going to sort of shape their interpretation. You're going to get into real problems. Same thing happened in the early church. So this whole concept of a chain of being idea went underground. It's still there. You can trace it through all the uh, early church or all through the Middle, middle Ages. It's not overt. It's, it's covert. And as soon as we, you come out of the Middle Ages and we get into the Renaissance and, and the culture throw, uh, you know, officially throws off the Bible as something that's archaic, this stuff just bubbles back to the surface. And you get a number of scientists start being influenced by the implications of this idea, everyone from uh, Lamarck all the way up to Darwin. And all of a sudden, with, with, the, with various scientists, not Darwin's only the last in a chain, and they give a scientific basis to this. So you see, this isn't anything... You know, when I talk about this, don't think, well, that's just all ancient history stuff. No, it's still, it's got new terms and new people, but it's just the same old thing. And this is what dominates in all, in, in most education. This is why, what you get taught as, for example, in history classes, it dominates the philosophy of history, philosophy of science, all of these things. Well, before we get too far afield, we go back to this concept of kinds in the Bible where you have hard and fast kinds and the fluidity of kinds in, in, uh, in this pagan human viewpoint system. So over here, for lack of a better term, we've already studied the kinds, the biblical concept of kinds is not equal to species. Species is too narrow a term biblically to fit the biblical concept of kind. For one thing, what you have is any, anything that can, that can breed from one species to another and produce uh, an offspring that can breed. And there are some, some species where that can take place because of man's definition. Species is just a human category. The biblical category of kinds is probably along the family or genus level. But for lack of a better term right now, I'm just going to use the term having defined it by all of that, I'm just going to, going to use the term species, that there are hard and fast species over here. Are there hard and fast species over here in a, in a, a non-biblical or human viewpoint worldview? No. It, it's fluid. I mean, today it's a dog, tomorrow it might be a cat. Who knows? Today it's a, a fish, tomorrow it may be a, a crocodile, and next week it might be a bird. See, there's a, there's a fluidity there. Now, let's, let's take that concept as, as a background because this is how the Greeks were thinking. They thought in terms of this fluidity. This was how they'd been taught to think in terms of their culture. And they're, they're, they don't want to have a physical body because that's going to restrict them from entering into this union with the infinite and impersonal. And that's not too different an idea from what you discover in Eastern religions where you, the ultimate idea as you go through this series of recycling or reincarnation is you end up uh, eventually losing your identity and your consciousness into nirvana. So it's the same kind of idea. See, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about um, Hinduism or, or Buddhism or New Age movement, theosophy, or any of these other non-Christian religions, they all tend to break down to the same basic concept. 
Now, think about that background and what Paul says starting in 1 Corinthians 15.35. He's addressing the question of the mechanics of resurrection. Now, I know what's in everybody's mind. How in the world does resurrection have to do all with all of this? Well, pay attention. How are the dead raised up? See, he's raising an objection. He's in the middle of a debate. He's been talking about resurrection, and he's got a somewhat of a hostile audience. They, they don't agree with him. Why should we have a bodily, physical bodily resurrection? And so he has dealt with the principle of it theologically in the first 34 verses that if there isn't resurrection in principle, first of all, then Christ couldn't be raised from the dead. And he went through all of the evidence for Christ's resurrection from the dead. That not only did the Scriptures predict it, and I pointed out that's the foundation. It's Scripture that predicts it. Scriptural prediction is your first line of evidence. That is just as good an evidence. Predictive prophecy in Scripture is, is the, in fact, it is more valid evidence than anything else. See, when you come along to modern science and they're trying to discover and put together uh, a theory of human origins, instead, they don't look at all the data, do they? They completely exclude biblical data and the eyewitness account of God. So you come to... 1 Corinthians 15, the first eyewitness that Paul brings to bear on the resurrection is the Scripture. That Christ died on the cross according to the Scripture. He was buried, on, and, he, he was buried and, he, and raised from the dead according to the Scripture. That's the first witness. Then the second group of witnesses are all of the apostles who saw the resurrected Christ, the 500 who saw the resurrected Christ, James, who saw the resurrected Christ, all of these saw a physical bodily resurrection. So his first line of, of, of uh, support is that there is a that Christ was raised from the dead. This is irrefutable. You can't deny this. It is a, a more true fact and a more true reality than anything else in your life. Second, he goes to argue from that that if you want to be a Christian, you can't deny resurrection as a principle because if you deny resurrection as a principle, you have to deny the resurrection of Christ. And if Christ didn't raise from the dead, then there's no victory over sin. There's no completion to his work on the cross, and there is no salvation. Now, we know that he paid the penalty for sin on the cross, but that wasn't the end of his work. It's his triumph over over sin began with his payment of the sin penalty, but then there is the physical bodily resurrection, which is his victory over the physical consequences of sin, which we'll get to in the last part of chapter 15. And then there is his ascension, where he is raised above the heavenly powers. All of this completes his strategic victory at the first advent. You, it, you can't just break out one part of it. So Paul's argument is if Christ didn't raise from the dead, you don't have a salvation. You're just going to die. So therefore, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, we might as well follow the philosophy of the Epicureans and just go out and party and have a good time because when we die, that's it. It's over with. There's nothing more. So in the first 34 verses of the chapter, he has emphasized the reality of resurrection. Now he's emphasizing the mechanics. So he said how... But someone may come along and say, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? And I pointed out last time, these are not really two separate questions. They are actually one question with an expansion in the second question. How are they raised, and 
what's implied in that is, well, what kind of body is this? Because the ultimate problem, as I pointed out last time, is they think you're just going to come back with the same old corruptible body that where you have problems with weight and your problems with your hair falling out and your teeth falling out and getting old and getting wrinkled and everything else. So he's going to answer that. And what he is saying here builds upon this whole concept, this whole reality of strict categories. Now, I may even have to come back and go over this again next time. This is a passage that the more I have studied this, the more I think there are some implications to this that I'm not quite pulling together yet, even in my own head. You know, it's sort of like you you know it's there, you can see it, but you can't quite pull it, pull it together yet. What Paul is doing, I have the thrust of it, but this is some profound doctrine in terms of what God is doing with us in this passage. He says, he starts off with this analogy of a seed being sown in the ground. He says, fool, not foolish one, but fool, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. So this is dealing with the first principle, how are the dead raised up? What you sow, you do not sow. That body that shall be but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. Now this is important. For us to look at this category here, he starts off and he's talking about sowing seed. So on the one hand, we have the seed which dies. And on the other hand, we have the plant that grows out from that seed. And there's a discontinuity between the two. This is fundamental to understanding everything in these verses down to verse 49. What you sow, you don't sow, verse 37. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be but mere grain. Over here it's grain. Over here it's the full uh, plant. It's the wheat. There's a, a discontinuity or a disconnect between the two. And in verse 38 he says, But God gives it a body as what? As He pleases. Which shows that whatever the plant becomes is God determined. In other words, you don't have chance operating as the overriding principle in the universe. And that's what evolution boils down to is time plus chance equals evolution. If you have enough time and you throw in enough chance then anything can happen, right? You've got to be reasonable. Anything can happen, right? Given enough time? No. Given enough time, 2 plus 2 is never going to equal 5. Never will. I don't care how much time you give it. It's not going to happen. But the underlying principle of evolution is that given enough time, a fish is going to turn into an amphibian. There's no evidence for that, and that's why they keep stuffing more and more time into everything. That's why time is such a crucial issue, and we spend a lot of time going through that and the issues of time and the old earth, young earth issues in Genesis when we went through that, and we concluded that there is no evidence, biblically speaking, for a, an old earth. And by old earth, I mean that the events of Genesis chapter 1, the seven-day creation week, because whatever happened before that is radically different from what happens after it. 
Whatever took place before Genesis 1-2, when we have the restoration began, is going to be so radically different. It's as different a situation as what the universe will be like in the future in the new heavens and new earth. We ha- we, probably different physics, different biology, everything was different. It was a different scenario until the, you had the judgment on the planet because of Satan's sin. So all we can do is go back to Genesis 1-2. And that could not be, if the biblical numbers, taking the biblical numbers uh, literally in all of the genealogies, we're talking about a creation approximately 4200 to 4500 B.C. And not any older than that. So you have, you have a God-determined creation over against the pagan concept of chance, just enough time, enough chance. Anything can happen, so it, it, chance is excluded here. You see, what I'm pointing out as I go through this, and this is a principle that you, you must always remember, the Bible is a unit. How you interpret one section of that unit is going to affect how you interpret other sections of that unit. You can't come in and do damage to one part of that unit or cut it out without doing damage to other parts. And see, what happens is if you come in and you take the first 11 chapters of Genesis and interpret them as an allegory, that this isn't literal history, that this isn't recording actual events, then you completely cut the foundation out from under the rest of the Bible. And that's the whole point. That's why, you, they, that's why in the angelic conflict you have the, the development of these false ideas and the people who are intellectuals understand this. They know that if they can undercut the first 11 chapters of Genesis, then they've destroyed the Bible. Jesus affirmed the reality, the historical reality of the events in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in many different places. So if it didn't happen the way, in a literal sense, then Jesus was a liar. Now you've got a problem because Jesus isn't the God-man. He's not perfect. He's not sinless. He's just as ignorant as the rest of us. Furthermore, when you get to 1 Corinthians 15, this whole argument for resurrection presupposes the absolute kinds of Genesis chapter 1. It is set over against this whole chain of being mentality that is evident in all pagan human viewpoint culture. So in verse 37, Paul says what you... uh, Verse 38, But God gives it a body as He pleases, and to each seed its own body. See, that presupposes kinds, that a... A geranium has a geranium seed. It's never going to produce a sunflower. A hibiscus has a hibiscus seed. It's never going to produce an oak tree. Everything has its own body. And then we see an expansion of this this differentiation of kind in verses 39 and following. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. Now, when we look at this passage, uh, he's breaking down each of the different kinds, and he uses uh, the Greek uh, phrase alas, which is another uh, 
another of the same kind emphasizing creation. All flesh is not the same flesh. There's one of flesh, another flesh of animals, another fish. So he's talking about uh, the, the body here. That's why he uses alas. He's talking about the same body. They each have a body, and it is a mortal body. But there are different categories. There's human, human beings. There's uh, animals. There's fish. There's birds. These are all categories. Then when you get into uh, verse 40, when you get into verse 40, it says, uh, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. Like New King James says there's also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. Heavenly and earthly is a better translation. The glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. And when it says it's another, it uses the Greek word heteros. This is another of a different kind. So it's drawing a distinction here between heavenly and earthly. Now that's foundational to understanding what we're, what we're talking about here because he's going to draw this analogy... between that which pertains to the earth and is temporal and that which pertains to heaven and is eternal. Now, it's crucial to maintain these categories. So whenever he's talking about things that are over here, he uses that Greek word alas, because they're another of that same kind. Not the same kind in the sense that, that uh, you have a fluidity or continuity of being. But they're all this temporal kind. So verse 40, there are, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. And the, but the glory, or let's use the term splendor, or the magnificence of the heavenly is one. And the and here it's left out in ellipsis. Paul is just moving quickly. He's speaking quickly, so he'll leave words out because it's understood. The glory or the splendor of the earthly is another. So you have two different categories of splendor. So let's put that up here. You have uh, the splendor or glory versus the spl- the eternal or heavenly splendor. Our glory. So these are different kinds. They are heteros. They are categorically different. Then we get into verse 41. There is one glory of the sun and another of the moon and another glory of the stars. For one star uh, differs from another star in glory. And yet, in those glories, it's all alas. It's all the same kind. So we have here a glory of the sun, moon, and stars. But that differs from the kind of splendor that's on the earth. So he's drawing a categorical difference. But now he draws the comparison. He says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. Now, that's the critical word. He uses the the comparative uh, Greek ad- adverb there, hotos, hotos. And that 
comparative sets up the analogy between the uh, between what he has said here about the difference between the earth and the heavens, or the temporal and the eternal, and what will be the present life and the future resurrection life. And so he says that the present body is sown perishable. Or we could use the word incorruptible. It is the Greek Greek noun thora. Looks like this. P-H-T-H-O-R-O-R-A. And it is raised in incorruption. And that refers to its, its mortality. It's the fact that it's susceptible to disease. It's susceptible to breaking down. From the moment you're born, you start dying. It's an inevitable process. Everybody's going to die eventually. Some of us are going to die sooner than others. But you're going to go through a natural, a natural breakdown. So verse 42 builds on that analogy. It's, uh, you have earth versus heavenly. Now in verse 43, this is where we stopped last time, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. Okay, here, here is our, let me rebuild this, we're running out of room here on the overhead. On the right side of the chart we have that which is temporal and earthy, bound to the earth. On the right side, we have that which is oriented towards heaven and is eternal in nature. And we have these distinctions in kinds. And the first thing he notes is that the present body is sown perishable or corruptible. Over here, it's imperishable, incorruptible. The second thing is in verse 43, he says it's sown in dishonor. And this is without honor, literally atomia, in dishonor. And it is raised in glory. See, there we get that word again. We've talked about there's a glory related to the temporal and a glory that's related to the the heavenly or the eternal. And then the third thing he states is it is sown in weakness, and this is the Greek word asthenaios, which has to do with a lack of physical strength. Sometimes it can refer to sickness, sometimes it can refer to a moral inability, but the basic meaning is physical weakness. That's A-S-T-H-E-N-I-A, asthenaia. Okay, Uh, the word for... Dishonor is atimia. A T I M I A. So it has glory. It has a certain splendor in the I mean the future by the resurrection body, and it has strength, dunamis. It is raised in power. D U N A M I S. So what do we see here? that there is this contrast between the present temporal and the future earthly. 
Now, this presupposes this distinction in kind that goes back to Genesis 1. Now, we looked at that, and just hold your place here, and let's go back briefly to Genesis 1, and I just want to remind you of what it says in Genesis 1, so you have that in your head. Genesis 1.11, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, lemino in the Hebrew, according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. So we see that, that Paul's whole structure of his argument here presupposes the veracity of Genesis 1.1. You take out Genesis 1.1 and the hard and fast kind categories, his whole argument for resurrection and the mechanics of resurrection breaks down. Then again in Genesis 1, 24 and 25, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping things and the beast of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, everything that creeps according to its kind. Again and again and again you have that phraseology, lamino, according to its kind, according to its kind. The Holy Spirit's beating us over the head with this concept of categorization and speciation, for lack of a better term, or, or dividing it into genus and families, and that these are unbreakable. Now let's go back to Genesis, I mean, 1 Corinthians 15. This whole section is built on this analogy of what? He starts off in saying a seed is sown. So this is like the temporal body. It is sown one thing, but it has to die. There's a break in continuity over here. You have a seed, and then you have the plant. But there's a break in continuity between the seed and the plant. Now, of course, the analogy breaks, every analogy breaks down if you push it too far, so uh, we have to be careful of that. You don't want to get into uh, overdeveloping your analogies. Now, let's go on. Verse 43, it's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory, sown in weakness, it's raised in power. Verse 44, it's sown a natural body. Okay, now we bring in a fourth category. It's sown sukikos. P-S-U-C-H-I-K-O-S. It's sown a sukikos, but it's raised spiritual. And this is the Greek word pneumaticon. Now this is where we get into some really interesting thought development here. It's sown sukikos. Now, we've done a study of sukikos back when we looked at 1 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16. Sukikos has to do with solish. It's clearly defined over in Jude. Uh, I think it's Jude 9. Let me make sure I have the right verse there. I think it's uh, in Jude, Jude verse 9. No, it's not 9. It's... Um, Nineteen. These are sensual. It's not sensual persons there. That's how the New King James translates it. That's a horrible translation. It's sukikos. These are sukikos who cause divisions. And then the last phrase is a, a, an appositional phrase that defines that. Not having spirit. We've studied this many times. Sukikos means not having spirit. It refers to the unregenerate man. 
We were all created, or man was created originally, body, soul, and spirit. So you have Adam's got his physical body, and in that physical body he has an immaterial part that is comprised of a human soul and a human spirit. Now when God creates him, in Genesis 2-7, God says, that he is a living soul. A living soul. Now, he's, there he uses the term nephesh, the Hebrew. N-E-P-H-E-S-H. It is the Hebrew term for, for the soul, but it can be also used as simply... Um, a reference to life. He is a living being. The same kind of terminology is used in reference to the uh, animals, the breathe, air-breathing animals. They're, just like man, they are called nephesh hayah. H-A-Y-A-H. Uh, living beings, living souls. Now, this is not a technical term for, for, for a person who is soulish. It's not equivalent to sukikos, and we have to remember that. It's very easy when you're looking at 1 Corinthians here to think that, that, suki, that the natural body, sukikos, is equivalent to this living soul because that's the next thing he says. You've got a, it's sukikos versus pneumatikos here. Now, before we get on to the next thing, which I was about to do, let me come back and add one more point here that over here on this left column, it's temporal, it's earthly, it's sukikos. On the right column, which is eternal, it's going to be raised pneumatikos, spiritual. See, we think of spiritual as almost like immaterial. What do you think of when you think you're going to have a spiritual body? Well, it's going to be some kind of a gas cloud. It's just going to be some kind of, it's like Casper the ghost. It's immaterial. No, that's not what it means here when it's talking about spiritual. Because Jesus Christ's resurrection body is a spiritual body, and it's physical. Now, it's not physical like ours is physical. He has the ability to, to uh, transport himself over great distances at the speed of thought. He has the ability, the ability to pass through walls. I mean, it is a different kind of body than the body that we have right now. So when you think about a spiritual body, you can't be thinking in terms of what we might think of as sort of immaterial. It is a body, though, that is going to be have as its dynamic the spirit as opposed to the body we have now that has as its dynamic more the soul because the soul is related to this temporal earth and the spirit is going to be related to the heaven but see there has to be a different a, a different and this is why Paul goes to the next verse verse 45 See, all of this has been building up to, to trying to deal with this quotation in verse 45. This is a major problem. Hardly anybody knows what, what Paul means by this. And I think that you have, to, you have to really come at this passage from a lot of the things that, from the framework of a lot of the things that I've said already, plus a clear understanding of the trichotomous position of man. If you don't have that, you're just going to start getting lost and start flopping all over the place when you come to this passage. Because what, what 
uh, Paul says, so also it is written. Now, he doesn't say as it is written. In ter- this is not like an authoritative application of the, of the New Testament, or excuse me, of the Old Testament quote. And the quote is only that one phrase, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. That comes right out of Genesis 2, 7. Nefesh hayah, or in the Greek here, it's uh, suke, uh, it's suke zao. Uh, a living soul, and that's how it was translated into the into the Septuagint. So it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last man, the last Adam, which is Jesus Christ, a life-giving spirit. Wow, now what's he saying here? Now when did you, well, first of all, let's work the, pat, work the verse backwards a little bit. We have to answer the question on this phrase, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. When did that happen? Jesus Christ, a life-giving spirit from eternity past. Well, somebody could argue that and say, well, he was involved in the creation, Colossians 1, 16 and 17. But that doesn't fit resurrection. We're not talking about necessarily talking about his eternal deity here. Well, he became a life-giving spirit when he was incarnate because he came to do what in John 10? He came to give life and to give it abundantly, right? So this is part of the incarnation. Well, how does that fit into the doctrine of resurrection, which is what we're talking about here? When did Jesus become a life-giving spirit? At the resurrection. There's a qualitative difference in his body because he gets a new glory. What happens is there is a, there's a kind shift. See, that's what, what this whole analogy is developing here, is that there is a humanity... And its originally created kind is earthbound and earth-oriented. And if you're going to have a, a relationship with God and live in eternity, there has to be a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is what? He is a new creation. So all of this is to show that what we get with a resurrection body is the completion of that new creation, and we became a new species. It's a new kind. There's a complete overhaul. We move from being a temporal earth kind to an eternal heavenly kind, and the temporal earth kind can't have a relationship in eternity with God, can't operate or function there. So it's that completion of just like the Sukikos man, the unbeliever can't understand the things of God or understand God. The, when used in this sense where it's talking about man as soul as opposed to being uh, energized by the spirit, which is the, how it's categorized when it's related to heaven, is that uh, it's a new species. So... Paul comes along here and he uses this as an analogy. The first man, Adam, became a living soul. Now, what becomes difficult is that phrase is referring to Adam when he's initially created before there's a fall. So whatever we say about this, it can't be something that's related to the, to the impact of sin on, on Adam. He was created a certain way, but that his whole structure, his body, his makeup, his soul makeup, everything is oriented to a temporal bound existence according to the laws of physics on the earth. And before he could have that relationship with God in eternity, there had to be some sort of change. So 
mankind, even in the pristine environment of, uh, of the Garden of Eden, even in perfect environment, man was created so, and in God's mind, there would be a, an eventual and ultimate change. That wasn't the final product. There would have to be an ultimate and eventual change, and this is the thrust of Paul's argument here. The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, a life-giving spirit. And then he says in verse uh, 46, However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, that is the sukikos, then the spiritual. You are all born sukikos, every one of us. This is where he goes back to utilizing the terminology the same way he's used it earlier in the book. You're born a sukikos man, an un- unbeliever. You're unregenerate. You don't have a human spirit. But it has to become spiritual. But that's only the beginning. In a sense, it's like the down payment that regeneration, you become a new creature in Christ, but the process isn't finished in phase two. It's not finished until phase three when your body is raised in glory and we have that resurrection body. And then in verse 47, Paul says, the first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. So he's drawing this. There's, there are these categorical distinctions and there must be a change, as is the earthy, verse, 30, verse 48, as is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy, as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. There's this categorical distinction. And before we can be heavenly, there has to be a what? A resurrection. And that's what he is saying to the Greeks. Before you can uh, get to the next stage, there has to be a an application of redemption to your physical body, which is resurrection. Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the earth, earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. And this is uh, future tense. We've borne the image of, 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 of the earthy, and we will also bear the image of the heavenly, that is, at resurrection. And that brings to a conclusion that section. So we understand the necessity. And this sets the framework because we've developed the terminology now of corruptible and incorruptible. And we understand that all of these terms refer to the difference between being mortal and immortal. And this sets the stage for talking about the resurrection itself, how it takes place, and the reference and the uh, what happens at the instant of the rapture. And this starts in verse 50, which will begin uh, next Sunday. So we did make it through, got it covered, and we will move on next time with substantive review to make sure we understand these concepts with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to, to be here to, to study your word, to understand the profundity of these concepts that your word is not just some simple Bible stories, but that it has uh, profound implications for how we think about who we are as individuals, as peoples, as human beings, in terms of your plan and purpose for us uh, with an eternal destiny. And this challenges us to put our focus not just on living our life here and now, but living our life in light of eternity. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both uh, sure and certain. Uh, Right now, right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny. You can determine whether you participate in that resurrection. 
It depends on your relationship to Jesus Christ. You either believe on Jesus Christ or you don't. If you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, then you will have an eternity in heaven. If not, there is eternal condemnation. The Bible makes it clear that it's not based on who you are or what you've done. It's not based on church membership. It's not based on works. It's not based on anything you've done or you haven't done. It is based simply on the complete work of Christ on the cross where he paid the penalty for our sins, and we accept that simply by believing, by trusting, by relying upon him and his work alone. So at the instant you trust Christ, God the Father knows that, you are born again, you become a new creature in Christ with a heavenly destiny. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.